Well, thank you and welcome to this afternoon's panel on does the regulatory state fuel populism? I am honored to be here with all of you and with our distinguished guests on this panel to discuss this topic. As the audience knows, uh, over the past a uh, couple few election cycles, there's been a lot of discussion of populism, populist candidates, what motivates their supporters, and what does populism mean? As was alluded to in a little earlier panel, populism is a bit of a loose term. Sometimes it has been described as the struggle of the little guy against the big guy, the haves versus the have-nots, the political outsider versus the establishment, and populism inherently seems to require a distrust of elites and elite institutions. Of course, distrust is in ample supply today. In America, public confidence has declined across US institutions. In fact, public trust in government and government institutions declined by more than 50% over the past about 50 years, or 20 years, I should say, 50% over the past 20 years with 44% of Americans saying that they trusted government to do the right thing always or most of the time in 2000, and 20% saying the same this year, although I worry about that 20% a little bit. If you know much about regulation, you can imagine how it could collectively fuel frustration, resentment, and distrust. Regulation has a habit of protecting the polit politically well-connected, picking winners and losers, creating endless bureaucratic veto points and ever-growing compliance costs. Regulation segregates by income class and race. It limits opportunity, frequently arbitrarily. It excludes newcomers, entrepreneurs, and innovators. It also just makes it hard to get things done. It makes it hard for people to solve their own problems without government involvement. Although there are, some there are some industries that have experienced deregulation, uh, namely airline, rail, and trucking industries around four decades ago, the number of regulations in other areas, including health, safety, environment, and housing, continues to grow, as do the regulatory agencies that oversee these issues. Where Democrats prefer economic regulation, National conservatives propose new immigration restrictions, antitrust, and online speech rules. So both sides of the political divide together drive the demand for and creation of new rules. Our distinguished panel today has spent a lot of collective time thinking about these issues, and they are thought leaders on these topics. I'm looking forward to them helping us answer some questions today, including, does the regulatory state really fuel populism? How does it do that? And what should we do about it? What are the opportunities for regulatory reform? And where are we most at risk of new and bad policies? With that, I will introduce our guests. There is much that could be said about each of them, but I am under direction to be extremely brief, so please refer to um, their additional information included in conference materials. First, Casey Mulligan is a professor of economics at the University of Chicago and former chief economist for President Trump's Council of Economic Advisors. 
Next, James Broll is a senior research fellow focused on regulation and regulatory institutions at the Mercatus Center and adjunct professor of law at George Mason University Law School. And finally, Brian Kaplan is a professor of economics at George Mason University, adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, and editor and chief writer for Bet On It, the blog hosted by University of Texas. Remarks will be provided in the order panelists were introduced. Um, each panelist has seven minutes each. Then we will move to have a whole group conversation. And then following that, we will ensure that there's time for audience Q&A. So if you wouldn't mind holding your questions till then. With that, let's start with Casey. Good afternoon, everybody. I want to start out with uh, my definition of populism, which I think is pretty close to the way Vanessa was using the term. Um, and actually, I adopt my definition from str Strain, uh, although he and I look at it a little differently. And he referred to it as uh, pitting the people against the elites. Um, where I would differ from him, uh, maybe some others, so number one, these elites do exist. <laughs> Even in the Trump White House, it felt like a Harvard College reunion. <laughs> and we, had a, we were low on the Harvard percentage. <clears throat> um, and this conflict is not imagined. That's what strain like will tell you, well, this is just an imagined thing that, that the uh, downtrodden are uh, doing for their own entertainment. You know, people really do suffer from significant policy mistakes. And the elites don't acknowledge these mistakes, probably in many cases aren't even aware of them, let alone fix them. Um, and I, had, I wrote a book about uh, the good and the bad and the ugly in the Trump administration as I saw it. And I have a bunch of examples of that. I'm gonna share a couple with you in just the couple minutes I have today. Um, this is data on um, deaths from drug overdose. This is an index, so it starts at 100 in uh, 2000. You heard the number last year went over 100,000 people in America in one year dying from, from drug overdose. Um, but this epidemic, as they call it, goes way back, a uh, couple decades. Uh, and it was raging. And uh, one of the regulatory decisions that was made um, by Attorney General Eric Holder, and President Obama is very supportive of this, in fact, that's kind of a holder's condition for joining the administration, was that they were gonna fix the problem they were focused on, which was the incarceration. Incarceration has costs for the people incarcerated. So they decided, you know, we're not gonna be putting people uh, in jail, federal prison anymore for uh, drug offenses. They're not violent. <laughs> Meanwhile, lots of people are dialing, but, but I guess death and is, is, isn't a violent thing. And they weren't just talking. The federal prison population had increased like 33 years in a row and started, headed straight down right when Holder made that decision. Um, just a coincidence, don't call the causality police on me, although I guess police don't prosecute anybody for anything anymore, but um, just by coincidence, that's when fentanyl entered our country on a permanent basis. It had popped in here and there, and the DOJ would go beat it back, but it came in within three months of that decision um, and hasn't left us. And you can see a huge spike in uh, the overdose deaths. Susan Rice, who's now the director of uh, domestic policy in the White House, in her autobiography, she begins with her day moving out of the Obama White House uh, during Trump's speech. And she overhears the part of his speech where he uses the phrase American carnage. And she's appalled, like, how could he ever use such a word? This is how he could use such a word. 
Um, in fact, he was pretty specific. Drugs have stolen too many lives. I'm not sure Susan Reif was even aware of this, by this time, hundreds of thousands of people who had died from that, and many hundreds of thousands more family members who didn't like going to those funerals. Um, and President Trump said the American carnage stops right here and right now. Um, well, there's the inauguration date, by the way. Um, here said, when I say Susan Rice, not aware, she didn't mention in her book. Big, long book, she got to talk a lot about things, didn't talk about the opioid epidemic at all. Um, and what I did is I looked throughout the entire Federal Register, which is the really the kind of daily newspaper for the federal government, um, and how often was opioids mentioned and how much was climate change mentioned. It's, it's totally out of proportion uh, during the Obama years. Uh, that reversed uh, during the Trump years, but during the Obama years, clearly they're talking about something that the Harvard grads are really uh, interested in, and the people in Ohio aren't. Uh, let's be frank about it. And the people in Ohio are getting a little angry, and justifiably so. So where does regulation come in here? I mentioned the Department of Justice activities. That's an aspect of regulation. Um, it's indulging the preferences of the elite. Vanessa. Uh, Vanessa mentioned that, and that's what Trump called a rigged system. I, it's not a bad phrase to use. Uh, let me give you another example, the individual mandate. I, Jason's talk, which I really enjoyed, he talked about how around the ACA, the government people didn't do the arithmetic that well. Well, they're also just kind of clueless how things work, including the experts. So many of the professors on this topic said, we have to mandate health insurance, otherwise the market's going to fall apart. Well. People hated that individual mandate. And actually, Obamacare didn't fall apart when we got rid of it. And they were just totally wrong. And they made people upset for no policy reason in the end. Um, and they just, they're not all knowing, let's put it that way. Um, and it's not an accident that Trump continues to brag about getting rid of the individual mandate because it was such an angering thing to people and served very little purpose. Uh, lots of prohibitions of low, so-called low-quality products. Again, indulging the preferences of the elite. You got to have a certain type of insurance. You got to have a certain type of car, a certain type of safety, a certain type of this, a certain type of that. You got to have an electric car. <laughs> That's for the rich people, right? And well, we're going to force us all to have that. Um, one example I give in, in, in the book is about payday loans. Read J.D. Vance's perspective on payday loans. He's actually used them as a consumer, and then read Elizabeth Warren's view on payday loans. Entirely different. Um, and then a lot, another one I mentioned is drug prices. It was a big issue in the populist world. Why are drug prices going up so much? The people don't analyze it. They're not sure why. They just see what their costs. Well, one of the things that was going on is the FDA was actually blocking generic manufacturers on an age-old drug, and they wouldn't say, allow them to come in there and produce it. And that made drugs very expensive until uh, President Trump got a lot of, rid of a lot of that. This is my last slide. This is my estimates um, of what reviving the regulatory state would cost. I made this in 2020 thinking, well, if President Trump is gone and, and a Democrat replaces him and kind of brings the regulatory state back to the Obama uh, pathway, what's it going to cost the different quintiles of the income distribution? And these regulations are very costly on the low-income people. Because um, again, where the regulation is indulging the high preference, uh, the, the high-class lifestyle. And they, they might understand the details, but they understand that the system's rigged against them. And every once in a while, they, uh, often in a Tuesday in November, they speak up. Thank you. Thank you, Casey. We'll move to James. 
Uh, thank you very much. So we've heard a lot today about some of the downsides of, of populism, and I'm not going to refute any of the complaints we've heard about uh, changes to antitrust policy or antagonism to free trade. But I would like to talk about what I see are maybe some of the upsides of populism. Uh, Casey mentioned the definition of populism. I looked it up as well before. And the definition I found says, a political approach that strives to appeal to ordinary people who feel that their concerns are disregarded by established elite groups, which to me doesn't sound so bad. I mean, shouldn't politics represent the interests of common people and not just some tiny elite group? Uh, and I would argue that in the area of regulation and regulatory reform, that populist politicians, uh, Donald Trump is one example, but I, I think it's true at the state level as well, tend to be pretty open-minded on regulatory reform. And they, they may be some of the best allies, actually, at the moment for regulatory reform. I should probably start off with a qualifier and say I do think the government needs experts, especially when it comes to science, technology, innovation policy, and, and economic policy as well. Economics is very counterintuitive. I think to the average person opening up American Economic Review, a lot of that looks like Scientology to them. With that all said, experts make mistakes. They're humans too. And there's a lot of reasons to doubt experts, uh, especially over the last 20 years or so with the experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan, before that Vietnam, financial crisis, some of the response to the pandemic, and, and on and on. That said, uh, President Trump, who, who was probably the most populist president, at least so far in my lifetime, he was uh, a big supporter of regulatory reform. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about what, some of the things that his administration did on regulatory reform. Uh, it wasn't all perfect. Some of it has been undone by the Biden administration. Uh, but some of it has also inspired further changes at the state level. So Trump instituted the first regulatory budget in U.S. history. Uh, at, the, at the federal level or in any state, too. Uh, what this did was it imposes it imposed cost caps, uh, caps on the amount of cost that regulations could uh, impose on the public with their rules in any particular year. Uh, a number of states have actually built on these reforms. So Ohio and Virginia are both examples of states that have s simpler regulatory budgets than the federal government had, but examples of regulatory budgets. In fact, Ohio just passed a law this year that requires a 30% across the board reduction in regulatory requirements across agencies in the state. Trump, his, he was probably best known for his one in, two out policy, which a lot of elites and intellectuals made fun of. They said, this is a silly policy. There's no economic justification for it. Uh, We've seen Idaho, Arizona, Texas, Ohio, Oklahoma have all adopted some version of this policy, uh, either one in, one in, one in, one out, one in, two out, one in, three out. In some cases, they've codified this into law. And I think that this policy was helped the, keep the regulatory tide at bay. Um, and that's really, in some ways, the legacy of the Trump administration was they just, he was able to keep the regulatory state kind of on pause for four years, and now it's starting to rev up again. Um, but I also think a lot of these reforms are likely to come back. Um, let's change gears and look a little bit about the record of the experts when it comes to regulatory reform. So I would say the main change to the regulatory system over the last 40 years has been the introduction of cost-benefit analysis into the federal regulatory process. 
and also this technocratic review process at the Office of Management and Budget. So rules undergo review by experts at OMB and they provide feedback, often economic feedback. And so this has led to this idea of a cost-benefit state, which is what Harvard Law Professor Cass Sunstein talks about. Well, the cost-benefit state, as, as Wayne Cruz at the Competitive Enterprise Institute has talked about, is largely a myth. I mean, there's barely any cost-benefit analysis even done in the federal government. Uh, it's, so this idea that there's all these technocrats reviewing every regulation, making sure that everyone, uh, every one of these rules has benefits and excessive costs, it's not true. It's a myth. Uh, I did a study a couple of years ago with Laura Jones of uh, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. We found about 7% of rules go through OMB review. So 93% don't go through it. Uh, about 2% of rules are required to have a regulatory impact analysis. Only about 1%, which includes a cost-benefit analysis. Only about 1% of rules actually have a cost-benefit analysis or something approximating it. And about four-tenths of 1% of rules have a cost-benefit analysis with both a cost and a benefit estimate. So four-tenths of 1% of regulations, that's the cost-benefit state. And the reality is a lot of these are just they're EPA air regulations. They're important regulations, but that's really where the cost-benefit analysis is done and everything else kind of escapes the process. And even where it is done, there's a lot of value judgments that go into the analysis, and the, the biases of the analysts tend to get built into the, uh, become biases in the analysis itself as well. And so there's clearly a danger of taking populism too far. We don't want to reject good science. We don't want to be just at the whim of the, of the mob. Okay? We don't want QAnon running the government. Um, but on the, on the other hand, we don't want out-of-touch experts, maybe, who have their noses in books and don't have much real-world experience. Uh, they're not, they don't always have the best track record either. And to me, the alternative to both of these extremes is what we're, I think we're all here today to support, which is markets, free markets. Uh, we're at the Cato Institute today. Free markets demonstrate that there, it's not all madness in crowds, and I don't think it's all madness in populism. There's quite a bit of wisdom in crowds as well. Thank you. Thanks, James, and now to Brian. It is thrilling to be back here at Cato in person. It is wonderful to see all of you here. I haven't been here in years. Uh, the question before us is, does the, regular, does the regulatory state fuel populism? Whenever someone asks me a question, I like to listen and answer the question literally. This is one of my eccentricities. All right, uh, so just to start, um, what is populism? Uh, surprisingly, we've already had two other definitions of populism. I have a different one that I like very much. Uh, in psychology, there's a concept that I think all economists need to know much better. It is called social desirability bias. It is a fancy term for something we all know in real life, namely, when the truth is ugly, people lie. Am I fat? Oh, of course not. You look great. Um, uh, furthermore, sometimes the lies become so ubiquitous that people start believing absurd things because they just never hear anything else. I think of populism as really the political version of social desirability bias. It's when you evaluate policies purely on how they sound superficially. You don't want ugly truths. Ugly truths like that sounds good, but it fails a cost-benefit test. Right? Uh, the kinds of things that I think of as really exemplifying uh, social desirability bias, you know, if it saves one life, 
if it saves one life, then we should do it, right? Never mind if it inconveniences hundreds of millions of people, right? That is the kind of thing that works in politics, saying, look, we're doing this to save lives. Well, how many lives? And how hard is this going to be? Those are the kinds of questions you generally do not want to ask in politics. And as far as I know, this is true in every known country. Even dictatorships try to go and sell themselves with a lot of feel-good nonsense, where if you really think about it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Another example that I really like of social desirability bias at work is universal programs. We should take care of every American. Well, who's taking care of every American if we're taking care of every American? There's something weird about that. I was talking to Denmark a couple weeks ago, and I was saying, I know you guys think your democracy works better, but in this way, you're the worst in the world. You are, the, you are one of the countries where you spend a whole lot of the budget helping everyone, including most people who don't actually need the help. If you were a philanthropist, you wouldn't go and give a dollar to every human on earth. You would say, where are the war orphans? Let's target the money to where it will actually do a lot of good. And yet that kind of talk saying, well, do we really want to waste money on everyone? Why don't we just focus on the specific narrowly tailored problems? Again, that does not sound very good in politics. And so we do see so much politics is really about saying things that sound good and then spending money in ways that sound good or regulating people in ways that sound good, even though the actual payoff is very small. Or as we're discovering, they don't even do a cost-benefit analysis, which I do have to say um, is a very elite thing to do, by the way. I've never heard a random person just say, you know what we need more of in government? Cost-benefit analysis. That sounds very much like something where elites are not getting their way, actually. Um, so we're thinking about there. Uh, now, uh, that is what I think of as populism. It's this politics of social desirability bias. It's thinking that, what, that we should just do what sounds good, avoid what sounds bad, pretend as if there are no ugly truths in the world, even though the world's full of ugly truths. Um, now, on the actual question, does the regulatory state fuel populism? What I think is clear is that populism fuels regulation and fuels, fuels the regulatory state. If it saves one life, that sounds good, and it leads to a pile of regulation where we spend massive amounts of money trying to get very small gains. We all saw this during COVID where just the smallest hypothetical possible gain is led to make almost everyone in an area miserable or just say, look, we can't do something fun because there's a one in a million chance this could lead to someone going to a hospital. Like, well, maybe that person who's so worried should just stay home. Again, that doesn't sound very good, but it's the same thing you would say if someone says, I can't go to the concert, I might die if I drive there. You know, if you're that worried, probably you just shouldn't go rather than saying we can't have a concert because someone might die on the way to the concert. Uh, so I would say that it's very clear that the reverse version of this is correct, that populism does fuel the regulatory state, but that wasn't the question we were asked. The question we were asked is, does the regulatory state fuel populism? On this, I think the honest answer is probably not. Why not? We have a lot of evidence that policy is heavily based upon perceptions of voters. But when we go and try to see what causes those perception to perceptions of voters, one of the main things that does not seem to cause voter perceptions is reality. Uh, there is a fantastic paper by, see, by, by, Gimple, by Gimpleson and Treisman on public perceptions of inequality around the world. What they discover is that there is barely any connection between perceived inequality in a country and actual inequality in the country. 
there are people in very, you know, there are countries where inequality is in fact very low, where you ask people there and they think that it's high. There are countries where inequality is actually very high and people think that it's relatively low. Uh, even more impressively, they find that no correlation at all between changes in inequality in the real world and changes in perceived inequality. Uh, this means, for example, that every free market person who has said, let's have some more redistribution because then people won't be so worried about inequality and then we can get more support for free markets. Wrong, wrong, wrong. You are under the illusion that actually changing inequality will change perceived inequality and the evidence says otherwise. Uh, the same goes for almost any other political variable that people care about. You know, are we being inundated by foreign products? You know, the actual relationship between changes in foreign trade and changes in perceptions of the amount of foreign trade, probably next to nothing. And we can go down the list. Um, now I am, of course, like most people, emotionally I like the idea that everything I don't like goes together. But that's just not true. Again, that's another ugly truth. So while since I don't like the regulatory state in general, I don't like populism in general, I like the idea that each causes the other in a horrible, despicable tangle of causation. Um, causality police could get involved there too, I guess. Uh, but I think you know, the reality is that it is not objective facts that cause people to support any political policies. You know, what does matter? I mean, of course, the really easy one is political perceptions are very much based on conformity. Other people think something, so I think something. Probably a whole lot of beliefs about COVID is, are based on that. Certainly, public beliefs about COVID couldn't be based upon scientific research because most people don't read scientific research, couldn't understand it if they did read it. So it's more along the lines of, well, what are the people that I know saying? What is the popular view among my tribe? You know, of course, media also plausibly plays a role there, although we've got to worry about reverse causation. People are going to tend to watch the media that says what they want to hear. Right, so keep that in mind as well. Uh, the kind of regulatory state that I am most focused on in my work right now is regulation of housing. Uh, this is one where, on the one hand, I'm very much in agreement with almost every other economist who studies it, saying that housing regulation is terrible and is doing immense harm. But then even economists will often assume, well, the problem here is objective self-interest, is that homeowners are the median voter and they know that it benefits them to have this regulation because it keeps prices up. There's, again, so much evidence against this. Uh, tenants are very NIMBY too. The people who clearly lose from housing regulation because they rent and they don't own homes, you can generally see that they have a lot of support for housing regulation too. So what's going on? It just doesn't sound good to normal people to say, let fat cats build some stuff and then you will be able to get a cheaper house. Sounds much better to say, let's have an affordable housing program where government then goes and builds it with its nonprofit hands and then allocates it based to people on need. That is the kind of thing that sounds better. Uh, so um, this is one where, again, I, would I kind of like the idea that uh, housing regulation is causing a bunch of other problems politically, but I think really what's going on is social desirability bias. The good arguments for housing are ones that don't have a lot of emotional appeal. And so I think that's the, the general story of what's going on. Sorry.
Thank you, Brian, for your comments, and I appreciate you literally answering the question, and also James and Casey really um, doing the same in various different ways. I guess I want to start with Casey, since um, since we started with Casey before, um, and I want to be a little bit more practical in this question. And you'll you'll have to forgive me. I'm most recently was on the Hill, and so I'm interested in how we get policy done. And I know that you saw a lot of policy getting done as part of the Trump administration um, in a very, you know, uh, a very successful administration, as James alluded to, um, in terms of regulatory reform. So I'm wondering if you could just actually tell us a little bit about that. Um, what were the obstacles or what was the resistance like? I'm sure that you associated with senior officials across agencies, and they probably told you their war stories. Um, and were there sort of strategies within the administration that were effective or um, that you think could be uh, improved for next time? I really, I really like that question. Uh, I thought a little bit about it so I can give some decent answer. Um, the, the regulatory budget came through this set of research. It was a small group of people at the time who had kind of scholars who had kind of worked out, well, how should a regulatory budget work? Um, and uh, Rosen was an important part of that. And he, he was on the transition team, uh, made an executive order very early in the first month or so, um, got OMB running on that. Then he went over to Department of Transportation to oversee what was going to be the single biggest deregulation around CAFE standards. Um, and then President Trump moved him over to Department of Justice to defend the lawsuits that were coming. <laughs> um, so some, having some of those senior personnel uh, with those skills was, was important. The other thing we learned, maybe a little bit by accident, uh, and, I, and we kind of got an A-B test on this, is to have a set of principles. You asked what the obstacles, the bureaucracy, deep state, if you want to call it that. They're going to be the obstacles, um, and they're formidable obstacles. Um, and so what we did in the health area is we laid out a set of principles, and it's called the Choice and Competition Report. You can still see it on the web. Uh, they didn't take it down. And it laid down the different principles. Uh, you know, consumers ought to choose. There ought to be free entry and, and those sort of things. And we gave specifics. Uh, and, uh, allow nurses to practice and stuff like that. It's a big, thick report. Um, really, we wrote it in, in the right House, but it's, it's an HHS product. And so they're kind of on board. And then every time the deep state came in over the White House and said, well, we want to do this, and we're like, wait a second. Didn't we have this report that said we like want more competition, and you're coming in with the reg that's going to reduce the number of hospitals or number of insurers? And that slowed them down. That's the A part. Now, in the, B, in the labor area, we did not do a set of principles. Um, and instead, we dealt with the deregulation there and kind of one off at a time. And we were less productive there. And I think not having principles was, uh, would have been helpful. Every time we're dealing with labor, instead of arguing on this one reg, we're like, can we go back to our principles? But we didn't have any. So uh, the type of things that Cato and the other groups could do would be to be ready with a set of principles for each agency uh, on how to operate. Um, and then the president was important. Um, you know, I, I've, I've told the story about uh, Operation Works. You know, we studied the pandemic, pandemics economics in 2018. Um, really, the national security people came to us and they said, us, the econ people, and they're like, 
you know, we're a little worried that a foreign country might unleash a virus on us, or it might jump from animals. We're not sure which. <laughs> what, kind, what should the economic policy be around that? And, and we, we thought about that for a while, and we said, you know what? Got to get government out of the way. During the pandemic, you don't have time to sit around and wait for approvals and all this kind of stuff. We need to get the vaccines and the treatments. We need it fast. We had executive orders on that in 2019 before anybody ever heard of COVID. We had worked that out. Uh, that was a little, and part of the reason is Trump was very enthusiastic about that project. Um, meanwhile, Trump was getting experience on how to get the FDA to turn that FDA ship, because remember I mentioned the generics earlier. So he had already worried about, already dealt with the personnel over at FDA, and he got kind of a good report with them, and he made them feel good, and they part of the team. And so he, he learned how to turn the FDA ship already in 2017 and 2018. And so then when COVID came and it was time for a warp speed and we really didn't need to turn the ship, we got it, we got it done. Warp speed came by the end of the year, despite the experts saying that it was not going to come, Fauci, not to mention any names. <laughs> Fauci, by the way, signed off on the executive order that said we were going to do it quickly in 2019. He came in his doctor suit. It was the first time Trump ever met him. And... He, he signed off and said, because it's his area, you know, we don't do executive orders without consulting his team, and we did. But then all of a sudden in 2020, he's, he's pulling the president aside in front of the camera and saying, Mr. President, you can't say vaccine by the end of the year. The FDA needs a year and a half. What are you talking about? We just worked that out in, in the working groups before. And that's the example, the deep state and the expert being in the way. I mean, he wanted power for himself. And... Uh, having a quick cure was not going to be uh, good for for his power. So, those are those are the obstacles, and those are some of the strategies we use and the ideas I think going forward. Thank you. No, I appreciate that, and I'm happy to hear, delighted to hear that planning and research and preparation actually they make a difference. <laughs> they do, since that's what we do here at Cato is research. Um, James, I'd like to turn to you. Uh, you wrote a, a piece recently on the next phase of regulatory reform at National Affairs, a piece that I enjoyed reading. And you mentioned in that piece that you think that libertarians and conservatives on, on regulation, um, that they should be more pragmatic in their approach to regulatory reform. And I'm, I was interested in that. The piece was long enough that you didn't really have time to get into it, but I'm interested in what you were trying to get at there. Did you mean more sort of incremental reforms? Did you mean that we should tone down the rhetoric a little bit around you know, where we're headed or where we're going? Um, what were you thinking? That's a, that's a great question. So one of the frustrations that I run into as kind of a free market leaning guy who's, who's dealing with public policymakers on a regular basis is just that there aren't that many people really like me on, in regulatory reform. Um, and so on issues like cost-benefit analysis, for example, it's, it's incredibly frustrating to me that value judgments, which are assen essentially, um, their, the academic literature has come to support a, a lot of what I consider ethical or value judgment decisions. And then these are that analysts in the government can point to the academic literature and say, look, we're just following the science. Like if you open up studies about the discount rate that's used in cost benefit analysis, this is an ethical choice. 
that it, that goes into the analysis. It's not like there's a right answer about how much to wait, wait to put on the future. But you open up these articles on this topic and they're just full of math and equations. And it looks like science and it's very confusing for the, uh, the average policymaker to see that it's not science. And so it's an area where I think the elites, the, the analysts are kind of pulling a fast one on the public. And I feel like there just needs to be more of a concerted team effort. Um, I'm, I feel somewhat on my own on, on some of these debates where I point out some of these issues and there's just not a lot of other people uh, who can come to my support. I, some libertarians are just, they don't want to get involved in any of it. They're more like, I don't believe in anything that the government's doing and that's it's somehow they're sacrificing their principles somehow to get involved. And then there are other more free market people who, are, who have this more kind of like go along to get along sort of approach and they, they want to make friends with people on the other side and gain their respect and go to certain conferences and so forth and get invited to get certain positions in the government maybe and so they're not going to rock the boat too much. So if you want to actually change something, there's kind of a void in that area. And so I wrote that piece in National Affairs to try, try to drum up some support and get people a little bit excited about hands-on policy work from a free market perspective. Thank you. Um, Brian, you have been one of the, I would say, probably louder, more extreme voices um, in a good way, <laughs> in a good way on regulatory reform. Um, so I, I would kind of like to hear um, how you think about reform messaging strategy, you know, ideally, um, you know, how, how could we actually improve uh, the effectiveness of would-be free market reformers, um, folks on our team, in the, in the way that they either re approach reform or the way that they talk about it? Yeah, great question. People often come to me and they say, how can we make these arguments better? And my usual answer is the arguments are already fantastic. What we need to improve is the way we talk to people. I'm a big fan of Dale Carnegie's classic book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. How many people here have ever read the book? Yeah, it's, it's a great book. I read it in high school, actually, and I immediately saw it was all true. And then I ignored it because I didn't feel ready to do any of it. And then I spent about 20 years reinventing the wheel, realizing, wow, I'm talking to people in a very ineffective way and it's not getting me anywhere. And then a few years ago, I reread it like, why did I reinvent the wheel? He gave me a wheel. Dale, what was wrong with me? But anyway, that's all water under the bridge. You know, there's some very basic things. The way that you talk to people, always talk to people like they are your friend. Uh, even in a debate, even when the, the other person is heaping abuse on you, I tell people, just talk to that person as if that person is your best friend. I know they aren't really your best friend. But when you are watching that argument, it's just hard to take the side of the abusive person over the person who talks to the other person like a friend. And one-on-one, -on -one, again, it is very unlikely anyone will listen to you if you talk to them as if they are your enemy or as if they were stupid. It is always much better to be very friendly and again, like on the simplest level of just smiling at people. Right. This may seem obvious. Some people do it naturally, but most people don't. And especially when there's a political dispute, a lot of people who otherwise have good social skills forget everything they know and start talking at people. Right? And when I say this, it's not because I'm so great. <laughs> All I can say is I've improved. I've learned ways of talking to people in better ways. 
I mean, I think that actually you get a lot further just with a smile and a good sense of humor while saying exactly the arguments that you think are best than by trying to go and tailor your arguments exactly, but without having a good attitude, without smiling. In terms of bigger things that you can do, uh, you might have heard I wrote a nonfiction graphic novel on immigration called Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration. A lot of the reason why I did it is because I'm just looking for ways to have a broader reach and to be more persuasive to other people. One really nice thing when someone is animating you is that in real life, I'm never the best Brian Kaplan. In real life, I never have quite the right smile, the right tone, but when I have an artist drawing me, I can actually tell him, you know, Zach, make my smile 7% bigger. <laughs> All right, make my, make my eyes 3% sadder. Right, so when I'm illustrated, I can actually achieve the supernatural level of being just the right way I ought to be. Of course, it's a cartoon, but it's the cartoon saying just what I want to say. I've got another graphic novel on housing regulation coming out, and I'm going to say it's going to be the most fascinating book on housing regulation anyone has ever done, right? Because it is combining words and pictures, which then work on a lot of levels. You can go and convey all the information, but at the same time, you can also give the right emotional tenor to not just the book overall. You can micromanage it. You can have every single passage, every single frame, showing the right tone, the right emotions in order to win people over. Right. I guess the, you know, the one other thing that's great about doing these graphic novels, by the way, is I really widened my age base. Right. So all of my other stuff, basically the limit other than Jason Furman's son is like high school students. So Jason's re you know, Jason reads my books in middle school. So yeah, another great compliment to Jason's son. Haven't met him, but I'm looking forward to it. But anyway, with the, when I was doing the graphic novel, my five-year-old daughter was reading it over my shoulder. There have been a lot of kids that have stolen the book from their parents and read it, and it does not mean they understood everything. But like anything that you can do that just broadens your audience, and yes, uh, there is a lot of truth to the idea that if you can communicate to people when they're younger, you are much more effective and much more able to change their minds. You can do this for evil, of course. You can go and get a kid and brainwash him at a bunch of nonsense, but if you've already done intellectual due diligence and done a good job and thought about it carefully, don't be ashamed to tell a child what you think. I'm not. Well, I sure think that that is a, a great recommendation to be, to be, to try to be polite at very minimum. Friendly, not just polite. <laughs> polite is what you are at a funeral. No, friendly. That's what we want. <laughs> <laughs> you realize when you're working with people on the other side that that is the only way that you can actually have a working relationship is if everybody starts from the basis of we're going to at least be polite so um, because it can uh, go downhill quickly if, if people start breaking social norms. So, um, well, that's great. I guess I want to make sure that we have time for audience Q&A as well, but I did want to circle back on one thing that kind of came up a couple of times during the conversation, during people's remarks, and that is the idea of elitism and how that influences um, the policymaking, policymaking preferences and policymaking. Um, and I've certainly seen in various different places, and Brian may disagree with me on this, but I think in childcare regulations, you, you can see some of this. You know, DC just implemented a rule where they want daycare staff providers to have uh, bachelor's degrees, um, and they have a variety of other things that they want them to have as well in terms of experience and focus um, within, within those educational requirements. And that seems like something that is 
exciting if you are maybe an upper, uh, upper income person, uh, parent. Uh, maybe you want your kid's daycare provider to have a master's degree if you have enough money. But a lot of people are just actually trying to get their daycare needs met so that they can go to work. They want accessible, you know, safe. They want a caring person there that will uh, meet the basic demands of uh, their child during the day, which are pretty, pretty basic um, um, when you are just a little taut. So, so I guess maybe if I could just have the three of you react to, to that. And you know, there are certainly places, as Brian has mentioned, where maybe this doesn't actually explain um, what's going on perfectly. And if it's, if it's not the best ex explanation, um, what's a better explanation? Yeah, I would say that regulation requiring that all daycare providers have a bachelor's degree is a classic case of social desirability bias. It is really easy to make that sound good to almost anyone. They shouldn't every preschool child be taught by a highly trained, skilled person. Shouldn't we go and not cut corners on something like this? Isn't the welfare of these little children too important for us to be worrying about cost? Now, this doesn't mean that parents are not going to be thinking about costs when they're spending their own money, but you know, a lot of what we get out of really thinking about economics versus politics is that there is a big difference between how people think when they're spending their own money, where it's like it has to be the best is just not something people really do because that's my money. But on the other hand, for a politician to say every child deserves the best, it is hard to argue against that in a way that sounds good. If you were to say, well, look, it's too expensive to give everyone the best. That doesn't sound good. Or if you say, look, maybe they're a little bit better, but it's not worth the cost. That doesn't sound good, right? You could just go with, I don't care whether they've got a degree as long as they love children. That's probably getting close to the best you're going to do. I don't know the actual data on support for these regulations. I think you're right that less educated people would be less totally in favor of the regulation. But I would also think that it has very broad cross-class appeal because the way that you sell it is just by saying, doesn't every child deserve the best? Well, that should be a matter of law. So this came up a little bit in the National Affairs article as well as I, one of my complaints about regulatory economics in general is I, I just don't feel like our theories about where regulation comes from, why we get particular regulations are completely adequate. We have a few different theories. There's a public interest theory that says regulators are correcting market failures and they're looking out for, the social, for social welfare. There's capture theory that says they're just acting in the interests of business. There's the public choice theory that says they're just out for themselves, kind of. And I think that there's truth to all of these stories, but um, it doesn't fully explain why one particular story seems to be more correct at one time and another theory might se seems to make more sense at another time. And I also feel like there's underappreciation for just ideology in general, maybe culture to some extent, um, the ideology of intellectuals, of, reg of regulators, and this kind of relentless drive that they seem to have to continue doing good as they see it and solving problems really irregardless of whatever the costs or consequences might be. Uh, I think net neutrality is a good example of a, of a policy that nobody was really clamoring for. came from a, a Tim, Tim Wu at Columbia University. It's a really just kind of an intellectual exercise, and now it's got this whole momentum of its own behind it. And so it's just another reason why I think we just need more good people involved in, in regulation is to come up with better theories of regulation and explain the administrative state better than we're doing now.
you know, in your, in your example, and also what I discuss, I, I, I want to say more about the capture theory. The special interests are a big factor. Uh, they were, in principle, an obstacle in the deregulatory exercise. The regulatory budget helped a lot with that because they, of course, they wanted their individual regulation, but a lot of them told us, they said, you know what, I don't like to see this regulation go, but I really appreciate all those other regulations that you got rid of that are really helping my company, my customers, my family. Um, the exception of that was the auto companies because their one regulation was just too giant to uh, compare to the, all the other ones that we were getting rid of. So the special interests are, are, are very important. Uh, but I took the topic today to be kind of the delta on top of that, which is the, there's a higher amount of populism affect, affect all of this, and is it affected by regulation? Thank you, thank all of you. Um, I'm sure that we have questions from those that have been listening. I'm gonna start in the back with Jason. Uh, this is mostly for Casey, but anyone else can answer it too. I'm always suspicious when someone thinks everything that's popular also largely corresponds to everything that's good, and I'm worried they've either deluded themselves about what's popular or deluded themselves about what's good or possibly both. I wanted to ask you where you see those two in tension, and would you think that immigration and trade were two areas where President Trump did what might be the populist, possibly even popular thing, but at odds with what we in the ivory tower would think was actually good for people? Um, President Trump, on his own, I, I was, we were part of a group of making a recommendation to Trump about immigration policy. And I said, in a closed meeting with just economists, I said, well, we should give him Becker's solution, which is there should be a fee. They, they all laughed at me. <laughs> and they did an empirical analysis and showed Trump the different systems that Canada, Australia, other countries have. So they go into the meeting to show him this, and what Trump says, on his own, he says, you know what, we should charge for this. <laughs> and what we ended up with, the, Trump's immigration plan, we, we lost the midterm, so it didn't go anywhere, but Trump's immigration plan, which was unveiled in the Rose Garden, you can read about it online, was essentially a point system like uh, Canada and Australia, which is kind of a regulatory poor imitation of the fee system which is bringing people with high, who get a lot of points on economic contribution. So it's kind of mimicking the, the type of people who would come in anyway. Um, but he, and he said, when he began that speech about his immigration plan, he said, immigration, you could hear, I could hear the Becker in it. He, could, he said, the uh, citizenship is the most precious thing we have to offer the people outside. Um, and I could hear him thinking that, you know, we should be charging for that, but, it, but we didn't. On trade, uh, yeah, he, he stirred up a lot of people with trade. Again, I would say, look at what he actually did. He came close to making a dent in the Jones Act. Um, he did tariffs instead of what Reagan did, which was quotas. The Japanese would come into Reagan's, and, and a lot of Reagan people, including Lighthouser, were there to see this and tell me about it. The Japanese would come into the White House in the Reagan era and say, can we have a quota? And then we'll say, sure. <laughs> We, we, got, we got our protectionism and the Japanese com companies get rich. And Trump did it differently. He did it with the tariff. Now, of course, the free trade would be even better. But is that the relative alternative? Uh, I'm not sure it is. Look, we got the Jones Act. Trump didn't invent the Jones Act, right? It's been around for over 100 years. 
We got the chicken tax, which has been around my entire lifetime, over 50 years. Um, you know, Democrats and Republicans all signing on to that. And so I think what he did was uh, better than the alternatives that we've seen as a matter of history as opposed to the alternatives that we have in the classroom, which we still, still should teach, of course. Okay, right here in the pink. <laughs> the fuchsia. <laughs> Thank you. I, I will try to ask my friendliest question ever. <laughs> um, excellent panel and a, another one. Thank you so much. Um, so from Brian, we got basically the answer that there is no coloration between a regulatory state and populism. But can I ask you whether you would see something that, in my experience, actually goes in that direction, but maybe somewhat differently, but very close to, to the mandate of, 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 of Cato Institute. And that is that when you over-regulate, you create moral hazard on behalf of the economic agents, can be firms, can be households, and that obligation to, uh, to, to deliver on that moral hazard when things go badly, you bail out. We did the 2008, 2009, <laughs> then we did big time in COVID. Everybody can be bailed out actually, universally, as we learned, yeah, you know how it was financed. Right? And you develop what I feel is, 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 is a big risk, is develop an interest in a paternalistic state, both by the individual, individuals and firms and the state. So it's not only the state or not only the elite. You, de you develop much deeper interest and uh, incentive in, in a paternalistic dependence on the state. And that I, it seems to me that's a big risk. And I'd like to, to with my smile, <laughs> I'd like to your, your views on that. So just to be clear, I actually think there is one way where there's a very close connection between the regulatory state and populism, which is populism causes regulation. The part where I'm doubtful is whether the regulation act or is, is, you know, is, is the other way around, where the regulation causes populism. Um, in terms of paternalism, I'd say that's another thing that sounds really good to most people. If you just say, hey, well, it's his life, let him do what he wants with it. That's not something that you're going to say in a presidential debate. That's not something that's going to win friends. On the other end, we say, look, we're all in this together. We care about everyone. We're all a big national family. Then, yeah, that's the kind of thing that goes over well. That's probably a, you know, the main reason why we do have so much paternalism is that it just doesn't sound very good to say he's an adult. Let him do what he wants. Live with the consequences. Um, I guess you know, there is this other idea that a lot of economists have that once we have a lot of redistribution, then if we don't combine it with some paternalistic regulation, then we're going to get moral hazards. Maybe that's what you had in mind, right? And again, that's one where you basically wind up doing two things that sound really good to people, even though if you really thought about it, it's like, well, isn't the, isn't the problem caused by the first thing? So we're going to correct one problem with another thing. Why, could, you know, why is it you first go and take care of people, whatever they do, and then second of all, go and try to stop them from doing what they want? Why not just go and let people do what they want and live with the consequences? Yeah, so again, it, you know, so much of this just comes down to it's really hard to make the case because it doesn't sound very good. But you know, obviously, if you really took the premise of paternalism seriously, almost none of us could do anything. We would have to be having our calories counted down to the smallest level. 
Uh, this is one where uh, the main good thing in the world is just the people aren't that consistent. And so we don't, f when we have a bad premise, we don't actually fulfill it. It's like you know, we haven't got, yet gotten to if it saves one life as a literal rule. Because if it did that, none of us could be here. We'd always all have to be at home, locked in a bulletproof chamber, just to avoid the small risk of something going wrong. I'd just add real quickly, there are, there are some good studies out about the role of trust and how that affects the regulatory system and that countries with low trust tend to have more regulation. You can kind of get in this negative feedback loop that you're describing where the regulation leads to more dysfunction and people trust each other less. They demand more regulation and then that process goes on and on. And there's certainly plenty of evidence that American trust in institutions of all kinds have gone down in recent decades. And that's probably associated with the populism phenomenon to some extent. Yeah. That's a case where I think there's a much better explanation of what's going on, namely that societies differ in trustworthiness as well as trust. Trust basically follows trustworthiness. And then in countries where trustworthiness is low, you get bad governments, bad regulations, and also people say correctly that they don't trust things. Uh, that's not the same as saying if we could just get people to trust government, then regulation would go away. I think all else equal, if people trust the government more, they would want more, even more. It's just that there's this confounding variable of the trustworthiness that tends to get overlooked. Okay, in the corner, Jeff. I was very confused about what the relation was meant to be between the opioid crisis and populism for any definition of populism that anybody's given. Second, I was super surprised to see you attributing anything about the opioid death rate over time to the Holder Memo. The Holder Memo was about marijuana policy, not about opioid policy. It was a memo that more or less codified what was already happening, so it's not clear why it would have any effect, just as the rescinding of that memo almost certainly didn't have much effect on whether the federal government was enforcing the federal marijuana laws in states that legalized marijuana. But then third, I'm just curious of your perspective on the libertarian view about the opioid crisis, which is it was caused by government by restricting access to opioids, which drives people to buy them underground where they're laced with unknown quantities of fentanyl and things like that. And it's the uncertainty about potency that you get in an underground market that's the crucial cause of the overdose deaths. Thanks. Um, let me start with the, uh, the Holder memo was not codifying what already happened, maybe at state levels. But if you look at federal prisons, peaks right when the memo comes out. Um, federal this is a matter of record. Anyone can look it up. Federal prisons peak in 2013. Federal prison populations peak in 2013. Um, and, you know, I didn't look up what those prisoners, exactly what they're booked on, but, you know, a lot of these guys deal in the multiple things, okay? And, and when they're put away, this was kind of Levitt's work, when people are put away behind bars, they're, they're less active on, on a lot of things. Um, what's the connection to populism? I mean, you missed the whole American carnage thing. Trump is going around the country in 2015, and people are saying, we got this big drug problem. Please do something about it. I'm sick of going to funerals in my neighborhood of, of these people. And um, he's listening, he's like, oh, okay, <laughs> I understand that's bothering you. Meanwhile, the Obama people aren't paying attention. That's why I brought the data on the Federal Register. Like they're talking about climate change every day, but they're not talking about this opioid uh, issue, which is bothering people. Now maybe a libertarian would just say, don't listen. Uh, that's, 
I can understand that perspective. I was very much on the Milton Friedman view of drug regulation until the customers started dying at this at the rate. And now I became, I, I still appreciate it, but I'm I, a little slower to push the libertarian view when I see the number of customers uh, dro dropping dead from that. Okay, right here in the gray. Yeah, um, just a quick background to my question. The um, live in Arlington and the county board and infinite wisdom is about to do away with single family house zoning. And, and, and they claim it's gonna, they're gonna, instead of a single house in the zoning, you can have between two and up to eight units in the same lot. And um, being an owner of a, Single-family house in Arlington. I, I find this is very strange. I wonder if you, if any of you feel like you could make a prediction of what would be the end result of uh, doing away with the single-family housing zoning and creating up to eight units in the same lot. Maybe Brian. So I think it is a great idea. The experience so far is it won't change things nearly as much as you hope, just because of the retrofitting that's involved. Um, in the state of California, the, the way that they have done it, so they, you know, they have said that now you can have up to four pieces, uh, four, you know, four units on a lot, but the owner must continuously occupy the house while you are subdividing it, which is a reason to not do it. I don't know. So it is one where you need to re re read the fine print. In terms of what the argument is, the, the reason we want to subdivide is because the value is higher. The total value to, uh, to eight customers is higher than to one. Uh, while it is not as desirable to have one eighth of a property than all of it, very often people uh, people are willing to pay a lot more than eight times the value of the individual units. So it winds up being a big gain. Of course, you as an owner are free to sell out. But again, this, you know, this is you know, a standard case where there's a regulation trying to stop people from using their property in the most consumer-pleasing way. And yeah, I think that we should go and burn that stuff to the ground. Um, not just that, uh, you know, height regulations have to go, parking regulations have to go, a minute max or minimum land, minimum lot sizes have to go. Uh, there's a lot of research on this saying that this has caused an immense increase in the price of housing way beyond the cost of production. Probably now about half of the price of housing nationally is just caused by regulation. And it would be a lot better if we had a large increase in the production of housing so that we could enjoy cheap, spacious housing. Um, obviously, there's going to be some people who are unhappy about it. Um, the main thing to know is that you know, the people will complain about even the smallest changes. People will make a federal case out of it. There's a great book called Neighborhood Defenders where the authors went through every word spoken in zoning meetings in the state of Massachusetts. And what you can see is that you know, people will say, look, there's a, you know, a billion dollar project. It should be stopped because of a bird. Right? There's no cost benefit analysis being done. Instead, it's like, is this, is this something that bothers me even a slight amount? Uh, yeah, so you know, my view is uh, this, re this regulation's terrible and it would be a huge improvement to get rid of it. Right here in the front. Thank you. Um, this is Russ Green with Stand Together. Um, I have a question for Casey. Um, as you're probably aware, 
there's a whole bunch of think tanks that have sprung up recently in the DC area that are essentially trying to codify populism, right? Basically create a doctrine policy agenda um, off of, you know, uh, President Trump's um, ideas and policies. But I think the irony here is that many of them seem to have interpreted populism as a reason to expand government or expand the arbitrary authority of the administrative state. So are they onto something or are they actually misreading populism in what uh, Trump actually intended and also what the base actually intended? I'd say they're misreading that. Another one I would, thing I would point to is Brexit. I mean, w w was Brexit about expanding the government? Uh, I think there was a lot of, with Brexit. There was a variety of issues with. But why are the people in Northern England totally surprising the people in London? That's a, they don't even know these people live fifty, hundred miles away. They don't even know what they're thinking, and they're totally surprised. And what what were the people upset about? Well, one of the things is like the idea that Brussels, like way over there, they're going to tell me like how I'm going to live. And that was pretty offensive. Uh, and there are other factors in there too. Um, but I, I think you see that as a, as a common denominator in, in uh, these populist movements. They don't like that other group uh, telling them what to do. Yeah, there's another psychological concept that I'm a huge promoter of, and that is action bias. It comes down to you know, something must be done. This is something. Therefore, this must be done. You know, anytime, anytime there's an accident and people say, well, what new safety regulations do we need? Well, what's the accident rate? Maybe this is the optimal accident rate. And so we shouldn't change anything and we should just continue going about our lives. Um, I think a lot of what's going on with conservative groups that want to use government to achieve their ends is they just don't want to come to grips with the fact, look, whatever regulation you create, whatever bureau you create will be in the hands of the, will be in the hands of the other party half the time. And the bureaucrats running it will be on the other side all the time. So what are you thinking? Right? You know, if you create a new bureau of internet censorship, if it could pass the Supreme Court and everything else still, Democrats will be at the top half the time and they will be running the bureau all the time. So why? It's like, well, we got to do something. You know, Sometimes nothing's a lot better than something. I think we have time for maybe one or two more questions, if anybody in the audience has one. Unfortunately, the um, provided iPad is no longer uh, powered up, so I won't be taking any from over the internet. In the back? Yeah, just trying to get my arms around this topic. And by the way, it's very refreshing to hear some positive spin on the Trump administration. We really hear far too little of that generally in circles in Washington. It seems to me that whoever wrote the question formulating it this way is looking at changes in government from a revolt from a failure of the regulatory state. And a failure of the regulatory state is by definition a failure of elites because they run it. So that's what we saw with respect to Trump coming in. You could say in connection with the great financial crisis, that's what we saw with Obama coming in. And we saw it in Italy recently that the population there got fed up with the way government was working. Now, it's hard to define 
populism, but if you fit, and everything everyone said here was very interesting, but is that really what we're talking about on a broad level? And thank God you do have these changes in regulate in uh, government in which a new paradigm can come to the fore based on failure, as in massive government failure, like in Germany vis-a-vis -vis Russia. And it really doesn't make that much difference how you define it. Basically, less regulation as a generality is better because it's very hard to make the regulation work properly with given um, you know, clauses that we, we cannot predict. I think we saw with central, central planning kind of showed us in a pretty stark way that there's so much information in this world that the planners don't have. And, and the regular people have it. They might not have the diplomas, but they're out there, they're living the life right there on the ground. And I think it's doomed to, to failure and it has failed. And luckily we have a system where every once in a while, the people who it's failed can speak up. I, yeah, I would just add, I, I do think there's maybe a healthy degree of distance between some of the, pol the populist politicians like Trump and the, the base, and that that allowed him perhaps to experiment with some technocratic type policies that maybe uh, the base wasn't necessarily clamoring for. I mean, one example I can think of is this kind of deregulatory cost-benefit analysis that was started in the Trump administration. I'm not sure where that came from, but I'd never heard. Uh, it, it's like, it was sort of an alternative to traditional cost-benefit analysis that focused mostly on economic impacts. And I liked it a lot, and I thought um, it was very useful in identifying productive policies to move forward on. And um, that was really an innovation that the administration came up with, and it didn't seem to come out of any academic journal that I'm aware of. I could be wrong about that. Um, but I, so you don't want the people storming Capitol Hill to be running the government, as I said. I mean, so we want some distance between maybe the, the, the public, which can get pretty emotional and pretty upset and um, isn't always completely rational and the politicians who are sympathetic to them, um, and you want them to experiment with, with some technocratic type ideas too. The one in two out, you know, was, uh, now Rosen, I'm forgetting the first name, but Rosen had written Jeff papers. Rosen. Yeah, Jeff Rosen had written the papers on, on, on the budgeting. The one in two out Trump found at the rallies really went over well. And, and you know, the regulatory budget was both. There was a, mm -hmm. just count the regs and do the ones and twos, and then there was an actual dollars column and there, the dollars column is kind of more useful for the reason you said, but the one and two was great for communication. And I got to infer that the fact that he was talking about that in 2016 and was still talking about it in 2020 means the people liked it. I mean, his people. Uh, I can confirm at the state level that's definitely the case, too. It's been quite popular among governors, and I think that's the reason why the public gets it. Okay, any other questions? We have one, we have one more. Let's go right here. 
Uh, I'm Nigel Ashford, the Institute of Humane Studies, George Mason University. I'm deeply depressed about the state of the world today. Do you have any grounds for optimism in the area of deregulation? I mean, one thing I would say is what's going on at the state level. So I mentioned Ohio. Ohio passed a law in 2019 that required all the agencies in the state to do it, produce an inventory of all their regulations. This year, they passed a law requiring to cut 30% of, of the regulations they identified in those inventories across the board. Um, Virginia had something similar. In 2018, a law was passed. Agencies had to do a review, produce inventories, a budgeting kind of system. Governor Yunkin signed an executive order his first day in office, I believe, requiring a 25% cut across the board. Then we've just seen a lot of these red tape reduction initiatives. They've had one in, two out, one in, one out. Um, and, and then I would say, I think the Trump administration set the groundwork for future reforms that are much more aggressive. Um, I, I would say there were a lot of these self-binding regulations that agencies issued where they'd put out a regulation like HHS sunset rule is a great example. Uh, HHS said, we're putting this regulation on the books that attaches expiration dates to all 18,000 of our regulations. Now, this was repealed by the Biden administration, but there's no reason why every department couldn't do, issue a regulation like that. And every department could issue a regulation like EPA had that requires the agency to do cost-benefit analysis and do it following certain criteria. And if they don't, then people can go to court and sue the agencies. This is one of the problems with court with the cost-benefit analysis as it is now is that you can't sue if it's not any good. Um, so I think bring back the regulatory budget, set goals like reduction targets, 25, 30% reduction goals based on the budgets, and more of these self-binding regulations, sunset provisions. There's, there are reasons to be optimistic, but it's an uphill battle for sure. And I've got something else for you, Nigel. We have just had two incredible years of massive deregulation getting rid of COVID regulations piece by piece. Of course, that follows a massive increase in regulation, but you got to take what you can get, Nigel. <laughs> <laughs> On that happy note, I think we're going to wind this event down. Thanks everybody for coming and thanks especially to our panelists for their insights and for their time. Really appreciate them being here. Um, I'm told to tell everybody that there is a 15 minute break we're gonna take right now. There are gonna be snacks and drinks outside these doors, so please help yourself and we'll be back in 15 minutes. Thanks again.